Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Jordy Hayes, who's the co-founder and CEO of Likewise, which you can find at HireLikewise.com. This is the end-to-end platform to find and work with the world's best creatives. It's a company that recently raised a round of funding and has a tremendous amount of traction, especially given the COVID-19 circumstances we're living in now. And in this episode, we talk all about that, talk about how he's grown the company to this point, where he's looking to take it beyond in the future, and so much more. As always, the show notes are discogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here is Jordy Hayes, co-founder and CEO of Likewise. Jordy, welcome to the show. Justin, thank you. Excited to be here, man. Yeah, great to have you on and talk about Likewise and the things you've done kind of in the past as well. I'm curious with with Likewise, for people who aren't familiar with it, what exactly are you doing with this company? Great question. Um, so likewise, at a really simple level, it is a platform that connects uh, highly skilled creatives. So that's designers, developers, photographers, videographers, copywriters to work specifically with e-commerce companies. Um, so uh, for people that are more familiar with this type of company, like we're a labor marketplace, um, but I like to uh, simplify it as much as possible. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and it is it is such a great idea that it makes like, so much sense in, the, in this kind of world we live in now, especially if you look at remote work and everything with that. Uh, I'm curious as to how, I know it started January 2020, but how did this come about? Like, Where did this idea come from for this company, Jordy? Yeah. So I guess the, the idea came about uh, purely out of um, my, my co-founder and my like, experience like in the last five or so years working within e-commerce. I think we brought this sort of unique point of view in that um, on one hand, we had worked a ton on the brand side and on the agency side, and it had seen how e-commerce companies needed to hire. Um, the reality is, is that in 2020, like e-commerce companies are completely dependent on creative talent at pretty much every single consumer touch point, right? So if that's web, social, paid social, email, print, the list goes on. Um, these companies need creative to um, engage with consumers. And when we sort of looked at the ecosystem and the way that we were working with companies and the way that we were hiring, we realized that um, the sort of like legacy hiring process uh, was just like fundamentally broken for hiring creatives. Um, so obviously, it's spent time looking around the ecosystem. Um, you know, in the past, I'd spent a really significant amount of money on sort of like what I would call like comps, right? So the Upworks of the world, like in, in the past, I've spent, you know, over six figures on Upwork. Um, and so what, what we were realizing though is that Upwork really missed the mark um, in a few key areas that were, that, that sort of like high growth companies uh, needed, right? So um, in a perfect world, you can go on Upwork and find somebody amazing in five seconds and begin working with them, but that's really not the reality, right? <laughs> Yeah, um, if you worked on there before, you know that um, as a company, when you uh, when you go on Upwork, you're sort of inundated with uh, a huge a huge amount of, of talent that's really not qualified or really relevant to the project that you're doing. Um, and then on the side of the actual uh, freelancers as well, Upwork creates this dynamic that really doesn't incentivize um, it doesn't incentivize like highly skilled talent to uh, continue to engage with the platform. Um, there's certain dynamics at play, namely that 
the platform fundamentally creates like a bidding war among the freelancers, which drives prices down aggressively. And while somebody will eventually get the project, uh, what it means is that uh, oftentimes like the most highly skilled people just uh, it isn't worth uh, working on the platform because rates just simply get driven down too much. And so I think Matt, uh, my co-founder and I brought sort of an interesting point of view in that we really deep in e-commerce. Um, we kept having companies come to us asking for, you know, just just as, as a friend or as part of our network uh, to, to get access to creatives. And then on the other side, uh, at home, uh, Matt's been been married for 10 years to a, a freelance graphic designer. Um, my girlfriend of three years is a freelance graphic designer. My mom is a freelance graphic designer. <laughs> We're like very like tied into the other side of the marketplace as well. Um, so it mostly came about just because we were listening um, at the time. Uh, and, and today uh, I was I had founded a, an ad network on YouTube. So we were working with a lot of sort of like later stage e-commerce companies, helping them advertise across YouTube. And uh, what I was just really realizing is that um, we were solving a pretty specific pain point there. But something that was absolutely like a universal pain point uh, was just accessing creative talent, um, obviously throughout history. Um, and if you talk to really any entrepreneur, they'll tell you that like hiring is one of the biggest challenges that they faced. And so with likewise, we wanted to uh, solve this problem around hiring really, really well for a specific niche. Uh, and I think we did that just because it was a lot bigger niche than anyone was really realizing. Yeah. And I remember having the conversation with Matt I th I don't know, somewhere in Los Angeles, I want to say it was downtown. And we were talking about this company and this idea. And, you know, it made a lot of sense to make it really easy to hire and to make it really simple uh, on that. Because I had I've used Upwork myself, uh, I've used other kind of companies as well to kind of bring people on board. And it is a process that's broken. It is a process that takes way too long to implement. And obviously there needed to be something else. And you have other companies kind of trying to solve this, this same problem for you then at likewise, understanding this from your experience that you guys had, what was this initial, you know, version of this platform? What was it going to be? How, how'd you start with this? Uh, yeah. So proud to say that Matt and I are incredibly scrappy. Um, we did end up raising for likewise, but um, you know, for the first six months, uh, I was entirely bootstrapped. Um, and I think we're very like comfortable in that state. Um, I think the reality is, and I'm sure that you've had many conversations about this before is that there's a way to break down any business to, to be able to, uh, really maybe not any, but, uh, I would say like 90% of businesses can be broken down to a very fundamental level that allows you to, uh, test the, test the product and, and see if there's actually any demand for it. So. Matt and I started thinking about the idea. Um, and while we didn't have like a, a product or a platform in place yet, we just started matching uh, brands to creatives, right? Um, we already had the demand, we already had the supply, and we just started sort of like making the market. Um, that snowballed really, really quickly in that, um, you know, we were basically growing 100% every single month um, for multiple months in a row. And, you know, we quickly started spending a lot more time and attention on it. With that too, so understanding like that side of things, like that's yeah, it's perfect. Like you said, it's echoed definitely by many entrepreneurs. Like, what's the basic version of this product you can you can use to to validate it? And I've I think someone else I had in the show recently, I want to say the episode actually released today was like, literally just having people text them, uh, and then they they would connect people like the same type of thing to validate an yeah. idea. From that, with likewise, then. Uh, how did you look at this like actual business model pricing behind it when you knew you could match you could match could match supply and demand but then how did you look at okay well what's the business model going to be for us with this company then 
Yeah, great question. We looked at a few different, um, we looked at a variety of different pricing models. I think that um, the reality is that what we found is that uh, labor marketplaces that charge, um, you know, very obvious fees to both sides of the market, like encourage a ton of disintermediation, right? And that's when people are just saying like, hey, this was a good match, but uh, we're gonna take this off platform. Uh, the model that we found uh, that we were most excited about was having creatives come on the platform uh, and set their own rates for, for everything from projects to hourly work, right? Uh, we felt that that was drastically different than really any other marketplace um, and really like empowered the individual freelancer. Um, and that said, obviously we have to make money. So to do that, we charge fees uh, on top of the freelancers uh, rate to the brand, right? So the brand is paying for it. We think that's how it actually should be, right? Companies forever have um, are, are comfortable with and have had to pay uh, for a variety of legacy solutions to access talent. Um, and so that was a model that we found worked really, really well and that we were just excited about. And I think that that's been reflected in the way that like freelancers uh, are engaging with the platform. Um, just last month, we had our first freelancer earn over $100,000 through the platform in his first six months. So yes. we're really excited about, um, about the, you know, basically the model is like really working. And now we're sort of shifting into a mode of like, let's just sort of like capitalize on this traction. Um, and really, you know, how do we go from the number of freelancers that we have now to, you know, hundreds in the next, um, in the next like six months. Yeah. And to that point then, I mean, how, with that hundred percent month to month growth initially, obviously it's just getting started. So numbers are smaller, but I mean, how are you acquiring people? How are you acquiring new businesses? And then even on the other side of freelancers, I mean, is it just your network you're working off of? Like, how are you actually on the acquisition side early on with that? Uh, yeah, great question. Um, so with likewise, we were, you know, we've just been incredibly fortunate in that, uh, like every single customer, uh, on the, on the brand side and every single freelancer has really come from, from word of mouth. We obviously had a initial sort of network that allowed us to sort of like jumpstart that. Um, but today, uh, you know, all of our freelancers have come from referrals from other freelancers, uh, and pretty much same thing on the brand side. Um, we're lucky to have uh, angels that are super connected and we're also able to uh, help on the sort of like the brand acquisition side. But, um, you know, we hit a million dollar run rate uh, on a GMB basis without doing uh, any sort of like outbound sales or marketing. So the, it's one of those things that uh, you, we basically just had to, uh, we very quickly were able to like prove product market fit. And now there's a lot of other things that we have to prove out going forward. Um, but uh, at a very basic level, like, you know, we, we felt really confident in that uh, customers were finding us and, um, you know, staying around for a really long time. Yeah. And with that too, I mean, it's, for people listening, like it's one of those things where too, if you look at your background, both of your background, your connections, what you had at your disposal, and you're very well positioned to start this company. Like that's just, you know, pretty clear from, from that perspective. And like, obviously you've executed to, to make it happen and have a really good idea and then execute to grow this. And at what point did you decide that, okay, we do, we do want to raise some outside capital. Uh, how are you thinking through that? Yeah. Um, this was something we talked about a ton. I think, um, I think to take like one step back, I think like one of the reasons that growth has come, uh, really naturally that I would just call out. Um, and that is something that I haven't felt in the past on certain companies that I've, that I've worked on is, um, like Matt and I just had this incredible level of like founder market fit with this business. Like, uh, 
uh, unlike really any other company that I've started. Um, and I think that's like, it just gives you such a ridiculously unfair advantage, right? When you uh, <laughs> yeah. have, like you said, that sort of like perfect background going into this and that we deeply understood brands and how they wanted to hire. And we deeply understood freelancers and how they wanted to work. Um, and that just led to so much, uh, that just gave us like so much momentum. Um, I'd say that the decision on whether to uh, fundraise or continue bootstrapping was definitely like something that we talked about a lot. Um, in the end, the answer was pretty easy. We felt like um, we had so much momentum and traction and the market opportunity was big enough. Um, you know, I think that uh, for us, when we felt like it was clear that there was a path to a $100 million run rate, that was when we made the decision to raise. Um, we felt like, you know, bootstrapping is amazing. Um, my last company, I, I raised like a very small amount of money from friends and ended up um, buying them out uh, a, a, after we reached sort of like a certain scale. And um, it's incredible when you own 100% of a business, like it's one of the best things in the world. But yeah. the reality was, is that like with Likewise, this was a business that we wanted to have the resources to uh, build the company in the way that like we wanted to build it. Um, bootstrapping is obviously, uh, I don't know. I, I think that we referred to it as like white knuckling it. Uh, <laughs> you know, we basically started the company like, uh, six weeks before the pandemic started. Yeah. Um, and so for us, it was like, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, we're fortunate enough that our business had some pretty massive, uh, tailwinds related to remote work and e-commerce, but that said, it was still, you know, still scary in that, um, you know, at the time my co-founder was, uh, moving, having a kid, uh, it was a pandemic. There was just like, there was a ton of stress as well, where it was like, you know, we could bootstrap for a little bit longer and then raise, but the reality was that, um, it, it really made sense to raise at the time that we did. And I think most importantly, we felt like, um, the people that were, you know, the people that were going to be on the cap table were people that we wanted to work with for years. So, uh, in the end, the decision ended up being really easy. And, and making that decision then and deciding to, to go that route, you, as you said, there are all these things you're in a pandemic, kind of really new company. I mean, how did that fundraising go for you guys? Yeah, great question. Uh, I would say, I mean, in the end it went well and then it worked. I think like, you know, we, we closed our pre-seed in June. Um, I don't think fundraising is really, uh, uh, ever easy. Obviously there's some companies that, that get preempted by, funds and, and it can be a much faster process, um, especially for really sort of like hot categories that we're all aware of. Um, but that being said, I mean, uh, for us to start our fundraise during a pandemic, it certainly like took longer than we intended. Um, yeah. but the end result is, you know, we got the end result that we wanted. I think like, if you actually look at the market right now, um, it's incredibly, uh, frothy. It's, it's probably a great time to be raising like as a founder. Um, so, um, you know, I think it's just, obviously there's a lot off, but a VC, you know, can definitely follow the public markets in that sense. So, um, you know, we'll see how the year ends up. I could see the fundraising environment being really different next year. And I think that's reflected in a lot of companies trying to raise, uh, as much as they can now, um, before, uh, you know, uncertainty around the election and that sort of thing. 
Yeah, taking advantage of that time and trying to, trying to raise funds while they can. And, and to your point of what you mentioned earlier, one thing that's I think is important when you you said that you and Matt really had this this founder uh, market fit, and that's actually something that Yuri Engstrom I'd mentioned before we started. But I just talked to him, and he said kind of the exact same thing. I mean, he's investing in early stage, and that's that's one of the major things he's lo- really looking for is is that founder market fit. Even if even before <laughs> these people start companies, they're looking at like smart people in certain industries, like oh, would they start this company? And that's what they're looking for. Uh, so for other kind of early stage founders, like if you can find that, it's also not only beneficial for you building the company, but also investors can obviously look at that side of things when they're investing in these companies, especially in the very early stage, looking at like the pre-seed uh, round of funding as well. Like on that note, I think there's, if you look at the, the graveyard of sort of like uh, classic Silicon Valley startups, like you know, a lot of them end up, you know, companies fail for a million different reasons. Um, but the reality is a lot of the startups that I see that don't ever sort of reach, uh, you know, get any sort of significant momentum are companies where uh, the founder uh, had an insight, but not sort of like deep domain expertise. And it's not to say that you always need sort of like, you know, really specific deep domain expertise to start a company. But um, I think that it's sort of a classic thing uh, in Silicon Valley to just like have the uh, like have this sort of uh, <laughs> crazy confidence in that uh, <laughs> one 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 sort of like area that I would call out is like because um, we were talking earlier and I was saying how I spent millions of dollars across you know podcasts and YouTube and influencers um, for brands specifically and one you know there's an absolute huge graveyard of of influencer marketing startups uh, that were started by people that didn't necessarily have experience within influencer marketing or actually understood what influencers or brands wanted. Um, and so oftentimes like companies are just being created that conceptually sound good, um, yet the founding team doesn't actually, uh, you know, doesn't have the, the insight to actually know what really should be built. They're just building for a space versus building, um, you know, building for a specific type of individual. Yeah. And I want, I want to go more into the product itself with likewise, how this platform works and a number of different things on, on that, what kind of you just mentioned, but one thing I want to go back to real quick is just with, with you co-founder Matt, I mean, one of the questions, uh, someone had asked me to ask other founders a little more is on the equity splits and kind of, you know, founder agreements and all these different things on like that side of things. Uh, you don't have to go into details of what that is, obviously, but I'm curious on how you, well, how that conversation went in terms of like equity split and the kind of founder agreement early on with, with Matt. Yeah, yeah. Um, good question. I think that's uh, I think that's a conversations that can either be really hard or people don't have those conversations. And um, you know, uh, there's sort of this prevailing like narrative, I guess, that all sort of like co-founder relationships should be fifty fifty. I think that was like popularized by um, by by some of the partners at YC. That being yeah. said, it's definitely sort of up to debate. Uh, with Matt and I, uh, we we approached the business. Uh, you know, we made decisions around equity, just like uh, without a ton of like emotions attached to it. Uh, yeah. And and uh, we have like a very like equal partnership. We are equal co-founders. Um, but that those conversations were easy in that like Matt, like uh, our relationship was a lot deeper than. Um, was a lot deeper than just starting like a company together. Um, yeah. Matt, Matt was one of the first people that I ever worked for. Um, and uh, while he was taking one of his last companies through science here in Santa Monica, 
Um, and I knew within like 30 minutes of meeting him that I, that I wanted to work with him. Um, and that was like years ago at this point or a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, so our relationship goes way back and I think it allowed us to like have those conversations from a place of like knowing that like, uh, if likewise is a billion dollar company or if it goes to zero in six months, like we're still going to be like, uh, you know, we're still going to be hanging out in 50 years. So like. <laughs> It's yeah. a lot deeper than just sort of the company, but it, certainly like in previous companies that I've started, that's been like a, a point of contention. I, I definitely used to take the point of view that all founder relation, you know, co-founder relationships should be 50, 50. But I think, um, you know, going forward, my, my perspective has like shifted slightly. Um, but you know, every single situation is totally different. So it's hard. You can't just apply like a blanket statement. Yeah. And for those past companies, then just real quick, then, I mean, how are you, I mean, there's this, yeah, obviously the perspective of going 50, 50 on partnerships, but how did you have those conversations or what were the things that, what was helpful for you as you're going through that? Cause you've done a number of things now, like what's helpful in those conversations as you're thinking through or what this is even going to be for other entrepreneurs out there in terms of the split of equity? Yeah. Yeah. Um, a company I started in 2019 that, um, we ended up having to shut down for, uh, legal reasons. Um, that business, uh, you know, my co-founder, you know, my co-founder and I both went full time with it at the same time I had let go. Um, I was running sort of a small, like consulting business on the side and working, um, with, with one company, uh, with the majority of my time, but I basically like turned down all those opportunities and went full time with the company. Um, my co-founder was in a position that was, he was able to, uh, provide, uh, basically provide like early capital for the business. And so yeah. that conversation was really interesting in that, like, I felt like, Hey, we're both, you know, we're both, and this was just a, you know, I've, I've matured since then. And I, I would probably take a position, uh, a different position now with this, but, uh, at the time I felt like, uh, he wanted a significantly more of the company due to the fact that he was funding it. Um, the reality though, is that I, I mean, I felt that, we were both committing full time to the business, going all in. Um, the the amount of money that he was investing, uh, I didn't feel like uh, should have skewed the you know the equity you know our equity positions as much as he was you know originally sort of intending. And so that's something that we worked out, um, and it ended up in a good place. Uh, but um, I think that's a super hard. I think that's a super hard conversation. All that I'll say is like. Um, I've had friends that have, uh, lost out on millions of dollars of upside, uh, you know, in, in just structuring these relationships in a, in a poor way. I think that, um, you know, the most, I guess, like tragic example of this was a friend who, um, you know, started a company that immediately did a couple million dollars in revenue as a consumer product company, uh, you know, he ended up thinking that the right thing to do is bring on a co-founder at that point because he wanted support. Um, but he made the decision to give that person 50, 50 ownership of the company within an LLC, um, yes. which effectively like, you know, any, anyone would tell you that's probably the worst thing that, uh, you know, that's a horrible, horrible idea. You're effectively like signing over, signing over, uh, you know, voting massive amount of voting rights in the company, deadlocking the company and giving up millions of dollars of equity. Uh, yeah. for really nothing. Um, and, you know, he ended up, uh, you know, it ended up probably being 
one of the worst uh, financial <laughs> decisions of your life. So I think that I think there's not enough. Um, I don't think there's enough education out there like on this specific subject. I think that um, that's something that I've thought about before. Is like somebody needs to, and, and there's resources out here for this, but I don't think they're oftentimes done by really high quality people that are trying to start. Uh, that are coming from coming at it from like a venture perspective, but like this, these types of documents need to be like open sourced. Uh, there needs to be more resources on this. That's definitely something that I'd want to be spending time on uh, post likewise, or at some point in my career, because it just can lead to so much pain if you don't set these things up in the right way. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to bring it up because I, I actually haven't talked about it uh, a lot in this show at all, but someone mentioned that in the question in different entrepreneur groups and one was through USC was mentioning this and I was thought about it. I was like, yeah, actually this is such a, really important topic for any entrepreneur, uh, because it's going to really dictate a lot with your company. And one of the things I always remember too, I don't know if you've uh, listened to startup, the podcast, and when they had the early episode of like equity split with startup with, with Gimlet media, uh, you know, that initial thing was, you know, he's talking like five or 10% for his co-founder. And then his co-founder was saying, if I'm going to dive into this full time, like that's just not motivating to me. It's not worth it to me to even do this at that amount of equity. And like, that's something you got to think through as a founder as well. When you have co-founders, it's like, you're both committing full time and it's not necessarily going to be a 50-50 split, but what is the incentive that gets people to do what, you know, really needs to be done within the company? Um, lots to think about, obviously, with that. But coming back to likewise, um, for, for brands wondering, for, for creatives wondering, take me through this process of, uh, first off, I would love to know a brand working with likewise. How does it work? What's the process like? Yeah. So this is something we've obviously thought about a ton. I think yeah. fundamentally, like Matt and I brought this perspective of like, we knew coming into it that companies weren't asking for a new project management tool. They weren't asking for a new chat tool. They weren't asking for a new video chat tool. They weren't asking for a new Figma. Um, what over and over and over the problem that we were solving that companies were really asking for was like uh, really easy access to uh, relevant, like vetted talent, right? So like, that's the problem that we were solving. And to do that, um, we felt like the best thing that we could possibly do was create um, create a, you know, a marketplace, but, or a platform that layered over like existing workflows. Right. So, um, we never wanted to like get in the way of somebody's like existing workflow, whether that's like Asana, Slack, Zoom, whatever that looks like. Um, and so like basically our, you know, the brand experience for likewise is like, uh, how do we make it as easy as possible for brands to access, um, you know, this like vetted, like highly relevant talent. Right. Um, and so to do that, like every company that's coming on, we're still technically in beta. We haven't like launched or, or really made anything public yet. Um, but every company that comes on likewise does like a 30 minute onboarding call. Um, from there, uh, they get matched to talent typically within like a, a 24 hour period. Right. Um, I think our goal with the entire experience on the brand side was a company to be able to spend less than one hour of their time to hire uh, somebody that they can work with for months and months and months. So when you compare that to the sort of a legacy hiring process that uh, takes, you know, days and weeks sometimes to hire the right person, and you don't even know if you're getting the right person. Uh, it's obviously, you know, 10 times better. And then for creatives as well, like creatives get to come on likewise, like see opportunities that are um, relevant to them. We really focus heavily on matching. So um, unless a creative has like a 50% chance or more of getting a certain uh, of getting matched with a company, they won't even see or hear about a project. Um, and that's, that's comes back to our like pricing model of like creatives are setting their own rate for their work. Um, and so we're not sort of like throwing up 
uh, an opportunity and having every creative in the likewise network just like bid on it, right? That's not, um, that's like what exactly what we're trying to avoid, right? And again, yeah. like freelancers and creatives are welcome to bring their own tools. So obviously uh, in the design world, probably the most relevant tool is something like Figma. Um, and then long-term, like the platform will, you know, continue to leverage tools uh, that are sort of like standard within the creative and sort of like e-commerce community, right? Um, but I think that we see likewise as very much like what's most exciting to us is that we think that the marketplaces of the future are simply going to layer over existing workflows. Like when you think about it, it's like Upwork is, I never, uh, I never want to want to trash Upwork in any way because I think it's an amazing product and it's been amazingly beneficial in my career, but it does like force you to sort of like use their tools, right? It forces you to use their chat tool and that type of thing. When the reality is, it's like, uh, the future of marketplaces is just uh, perfect integration between, um, you know, your current workflows and, and accessing um, that talent. Yeah, and that's just making it as easy as possible. I mean, like at the, at the core, it's like, what do companies want? They they want to be able to hire workers really easy for whatever, whether it be a project base, whether it be longer term, and just make it simple for that. And you mentioned this kind of value proposition of, you know, in under an hour of their time to get someone. That's, I mean, that's pretty impressive in terms of pulling that off. Um, on the on the other side, on the creator side, like, how are you? I know you're kind of in a closed beta right now, but looking at which creators to bring on, how you're evaluating which ones are you know going to be on, on the platform. How are you looking at that side of things, Jordy? Yeah, uh, I think we have the amazing benefit of being in the creative world, and that uh, the result of that is that every single person that we would ever want to join, likewise, like has this visual history of their work in the form of a portfolio. Um, so that gives us an incredible advantage around being able to quickly and easily uh, vet talent, right? Uh, obviously, just you know, doing a portfolio review isn't isn't enough to determine if somebody's a fit for likewise. But we do have the benefit of being able to see, like, you know, we can tell uh, within one second if somebody's really like qualified uh, and is ready to be on likewise, sort of like at this stage in their career. Um, I would say that like the comparison is something like. Uh, hiring like other types of freelancers, right? So if you're hiring a marketer, for example, it's really difficult to determine if somebody is a really high quality marketer, right? Uh, you're not going to get access to the ads account that the, you know, the ad accounts <laughs> that they previously ran. Yeah. Uh, that's like proprietary data. Whereas like with creative work, there's this amazing sort of like visual history of that person's like growth as an individual and their sort of like track record. Um, and so I'd say that that's like one thing that's allowed us to really efficiently scale, um, the supply side of the business. With, with the fundraising early on that you, you brought on. So this pre-seed round, what was that really going towards in your minds to grow this? So obviously you've had some amazing growth in the last number of months for you in that fundraising, what was that pre-seed going towards in terms of your growth? Yeah, I think, um, the, the pre-seed, you know, we, the way it's actually like worked out is um, I think we initially intended to launch a little bit sooner. Um, I think the reality is that we were still having the growth uh, within just the beta that it, it, it actually made sense to um, keep things a little tighter, like really invest in sort of like infrastructure and, and sort of the team. Yeah. Uh, the last few months have been um, building out sort of like internal processes. Like uh, without a doubt, we cut a lot of corners in the first six months, just as a team of two, you're super nimble. Um, and you don't really have to rely on process to, to execute um, and scale. But that said, like that really catches up to you. And so <laughs> the last couple of months have been really focused on 
uh, process, infrastructure. We've brought on two people. Um, we have a third uh, that's like part time. And so that's really been our focus. I think like at this stage, we're, uh, you know, we're, we're in the process of raising a seed as well. So um, that will that that's sort of, you know, the round where we'll actually be capitalizing uh, uh, a lot more heavily on on our traction to date um, and kind of give us that year, year and a half runway to really uh, just just double down um, and invest um, where we see fit. But that said, obviously, the seed will primarily be going towards um, product and, and growth and, and as well as team, obviously. Yeah, and it always evolves depending on where you're at with that and how big of a round as well you're going to end up raising. I know there's, uh, we were talking to some of Yuri earlier again just about how some companies are raising too much. Uh, and then, you know, you're obviously trying to prepare now, which is a weird time to be in during this global pandemic of, okay, we don't know how next year is going to be. We want to raise now. But also, then you have some historic companies that have raised a, a shit ton, let's just say, uh, and then become too bloated and really kind of tanked because of that. A lot of them are related to like kind of soft bank companies. Um, and, and with that, I mean, I guess I'm curious as to how you're looking at uh, raising your next round then uh, in terms of how big of a round you're going to attempt, attempt to raise at least. How are you even just th thinking through that, Jordy? Yeah. Um... Again, something I've thought about a ton recently, I think we, you know, this business has the potential to be super capital efficient, right? Um, oh, yeah. Day one, we were generating revenue from day one, we were, you know, technically like profitable, right? We had to be obviously yeah. um, we a really long time without taking any sort of like salary. Um, but yeah, I'd say that um, with this round, like we're looking for, um, I would say like the pre-seed round was great and that allowed us to, to start investing in some of these areas. But like the reality is it didn't really give us, um, it didn't give us a year plus long runway. Right. So the seed is really to do that, um, to be able to not really have to think about fundraising, you know, for a really significant amount of time and be able to invest where we need. Um, I'd say that like, yeah, as far as like typical, like Silicon Valley standards, like we're not, we're raising a, a pretty small round. Um, we're re only raising like up to 2 million. And so, I'd say that, uh, you know, yeah, it's funny that, that, that used to be sort of like a series a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. On our end, like we're, we can do a lot with very little that's sort of like in our DNA and that's how Matt and I like, like building companies. Right. So, um, it's definitely been something I've had to get used to and that like previous companies, you know, I was never really in a position to be spending more money than was coming in. Right. Um, yeah. that's certainly been a shift for me with this business and just like getting comfortable being in a, you know, having burn being in a deficit and uh uh yeah it's something that's i guess like as somebody who's bootstrapped you know in the past it, it's sort of like nerve-wracking but it's also um it's also exciting it's an opportunity to um you know it's an opportunity to like prove ourselves and like there's no there's no excuses when you raise capital you know like i feel <laughs> When you're bootstrapping it's easy to make excuses around like oh like if you know if we only you know if we had this money we can invest here um, but everything's sort of like out in the open when you raise I, I sort of like that and um so it'll be a it'll be a fun next year um but fortunate to have like all of these uh you know i think that the exciting thing for us is that um and we're just really fortunate to be in this position is that like uh if you had told us um, hey, there's going to be a global pandemic. Um, this is probably one of the best companies that we could start. Um, it sounds sort of like twisted, but the reality is that 
um, the business is centered around uh, remote work and e-commerce, two things that have absolutely like exploded uh, yeah. in six months. And so um, we think that this is a great time to be building this business. I think that um, internally, one of our goals is to deliver like $100 million in earnings to, to creatives within the next um you know, within the next uh, few years. And I, I'd say that we're, we're, we're less than 1% of the way there yet, but, um, you know, growing significantly. So that'll obviously speed up. <laughs> yeah, their, gro- their growth will help. I, I mean, I know there's a number of companies I've talked to recently who have, from, because of the pandemic as well, have really uh, just blasted off. I mean, look at a company like Zero, Gro- Zero Grocery, which 15X'd in a number of, of months. Uh, Dumpling, which is a company that's basically battling Instacart, doing it in a way better way for the actual shoppers and such. They like 20X'd right. in a number of months. I mean, some crazy growth numbers to hear about during this pandemic because some companies are just really aligned perfectly for the situation we're in now. Um, and, and with that, so as, as Likewise has grown, uh, I'm just curious about kind of your, your your role and Matt's role. How has that evolved? Has it always been kind of the same in terms of the separation? Just take me through that a little bit. Yeah, uh, I guess something I hadn't mentioned is we, we've been distributed from the beginning. Uh, when we first started Likewise, um, it you know, we were both living in LA, but, uh, as you know, like that doesn't mean that you're, uh, you're in the same place. Matt, uh, Matt lived on the East side. I'm over in Venice. So, um, we were effectively distributed from the very beginning. I think that, um, what's funny is that when Matt and I first started the company, we felt like there was too much overlap in our skill set. And I think the reality, (laughs) what the past six months has shown is that we're actually, uh, we do have overlap, but we're sort of uniquely strong in sort of different areas. Um, and so that's been kind of cool to see how that plays out. Uh, Matt and I, I think, have an awesome partnership, and it's something that we're committed to, like, investing in. Um, something that we, we probably, are, maybe this is not even possible, but I would say we, we might have even gotten a coach uh, sooner than we, you know, than we really needed to. But it was just something where, um, you know, our, you know, for us, we have, like, a commitment to, commitment to, to learning and like growing together and like becoming, uh, better leaders as individually and better leaders as like a partnership. And so our, you know, the executive coach that we work with a guy named David Cherry, um, who's incredible. Like we actually have him spend time with our entire team as well. Um, so, uh, it's been something that I think has been a great investment so far and it allows us to like pick up insights, uh, and allows our coach to have a faster sort of like feedback loop too, which I think is interesting. Um, and that there's stuff that he picks up from the team that we're not necessarily picking up. So I'd say it's, um, it's something that I, I, I think will become more common. It probably is more common among bigger organizations, but it's just something that I, I would push more early stage founders to invest in. I think that, you know, you know, this from, from starting your company. It's like, uh, there's nothing that puts you sort of like face to face with your own demons, uh, like starting a company. Right. So like having a guide throughout that and having a, um, you know, I think that Matt and I, uh, together, like we can sort of like prop each other up, you know, everybody has good days and bad days. And hopefully you're in a situation where, um, you know, it's, uh, it's counter sort of like counterbalance. And I think we definitely do that. 
Yeah, definitely. When someone's having a you know a, a great day on the day of their partner isn't, you know, help balance that out. And one of the things I had actually just interviewed this week, uh, probably be live in a couple of weeks, depending on when this is released. But um, is Holger, who's the uh, co-founder and CEO of of Blinkist, and he mentioned not necessarily right. the executive coach, but he was uh, they invested pretty early on in HR, and like he said, that's something he would have even I think done more of is like invest in kind of an HR people person because really building that team out is going to be so important, especially as you plan to grow faster, like taking the time to invest in something that's not normally seen as, oh, this is going to directly affect our growth. But if we invest in the HR kind of human resources person, that's going to really help us as we build out this team. And that was something he had kind of hammered home, which I thought was pretty interesting to think about for you know early stage founders as well. And, and as you've gone along and kind of this journey, I'm a big reader. So I'm always curious, has there any been, been any particular books that have been useful, whether it be business or personal for you? Yeah, good question. Um, some, a book that uh, is a little bit more, uh, maybe that you hopefully haven't heard of, um, that I read this year that I think was, uh, I thought was an amazing read. I read it in a few hours on a flight. Uh, it's called like Built to Sell. Uh, it's about like building companies like with the intention of selling them. Uh, and I would say that most founders would tell you that like you shouldn't get into it, you know, you shouldn't start building a company just because you want to sell it someday. But uh, when you build a company in that way, it forces you to make decisions and and around the company that are just really beneficial for a, a huge number of reasons, right? Um, so that's a book that I'd call out that I'd say has been uh, has been sort of powerful for me. I think that like as a founder, I'm uh, I'm not, as like an individual, I'm not uh, sort of uh, process driven. Uh, and so what I find is that my, you know, I have like counterbalances in place now uh, and we specifically hired to sort of like meet some of these shortcomings, but like built to sell was a wake up call and that if you want to build something with like enduring value and if you want to build an organization that has enduring value uh, and isn't dependent on you, uh, you need to like process and, and focus and all these other things are super important. So that's something that I, I recommend um, everyone. Yeah. Yeah, I think that to hammer that point, I mean, processes or systems in place is, is really everything, especially uh, as you go out and, and hire people, having that in place is so much easier than to, to run it. Just from running a from running a podcast in this business, it's like, you know, having systems in place to how do I produce an episode? How do you get guests in the show? How do you promote it? I and mean, all that stuff is really, these are all systems in place that in theory, you could outsource to almost anyone to, to handle that. And uh, with 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 tools like Loom, for instance, where you have these extreme recording yeah. video, like, yeah, it's so beneficial to to do those. Where I've used Loom videos and you have a virtual assistant, like in the Philippines, for instance, uh, do some tasks you need, and it's literally you were doing the exact task, and then them just seeing it, like, oh, this is how you do it. It's really easy uh, yeah. to do that from that perspective. And and for you, I mean, what does your kind of day to day look like now, Jordy? I'm curious. Yeah, it's funny. It's uh, certainly obviously everyone's day-to-day has shifted because of COVID. Um, I was working out of an office prior to, uh, you know, January and February. Now, um, it's funny that the lines between work and not non-work have definitely blurred. Um, you know, I'd say that when, you know, I think everyone's probably realized this, but, um, work just will always expand to the time that you allow for it. Right. So yeah, because I don't set any boundaries around my work anymore and I'm happy working from set, you know, I'm not necessarily happy, but, uh, I'm very comfortable working from 7am to 10pm. 
the work just consistently expands to that period. So uh, still, you know, make time, <laughs> make time for walks. Um, you know, if my neighbors would probably laugh because I, uh, you know, when it's not uh, when L.A. isn't uh, blanketed in smoke, I'm pretty much. Uh, I try to take as many calls as I can just walking around the neighborhood. Um, so I probably get plenty of steps in there. But yeah, it's it's gotten to a point where um, my day to day is just like pretty much, you know, entirely uh, allocated towards likewise. Um, that's in a way this year has been uh, the the like the the misfortune of this year has been really unevenly distributed, right? Yeah. Um, like trying to see this, the, I mean, the silver linings, at least personally, is that I would have spent this year uh, indoors uh, working 10 hours a day, regardless of what was going on in the broader uh, ecosystem. So uh, yeah, for me, it's like uh, been a year to sort of like focus and really uh, align my day to day with the business. Yeah, you miss out on less because because of COVID. I mean, it's just like you were going to be working regardless. It's like, yeah, now you're missing out on less. And that's how I've kind of viewed the same thing and just go grind. It's like, there's just because of this weird situation, obviously unfortunate, uh, but there is less going on in terms of like distractions and things that you would have had at your display. You know, now it's like, okay, well, I'm not missing on that. Like I get this time to build, which is also you know exciting for founders, like time to build, like kind of Mark Andreessen was saying in a blog post of his is uh, the time to build is now basically. And, and where can people go to learn more about, uh, likewise connect with you as well, Jordy? Yeah. Um, we could have a whole conversation around uh, uh, just just your your last point there, but um, <laughs> uh, I'm at Jordy Hayes on Twitter, J O R D I H A Y S, and then uh, the, the website is higherlikewise.com. Awesome, um, those are that's where you can find me. Um, this is awesome, man. Thank you for the time. Absolutely, and I'll be sure to link those up in the show notes, just grind.com slash podcast. Great talking with you, Jordy, and uh, we'll have to have a round two as you continue on at some point as well. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Can't wait. Thanks, Justin. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. Justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.